And the reason I don't mind wearing my heart on my sleeve and being upfront about that is because it informs how I help clients allocate capital. It means I am necessarily going to look at any asset manager who comes our way with a bit of skepticism. If they're claiming impact intentionality in support for low-income populations, I'm going to want to know that they're not being extractive. I'm going to want to know that they actually care about the communities they claim to serve because they come from those communities. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player, This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Nick Flores, Managing Director at Caprock, a multi-family office and founding B Corporation with $8 billion of assets under management and a rigorous approach to impact investing. In addition, Nick is the former Director of Investment and Entrepreneur Services for Investors Circle, an impact-focused group, manager of the Capital Access Program at Green for All. In this episode, we talked about their work helping 260-plus families invest $8 billion across six asset classes, how they select fund managers to invest in, the process by which they integrate impact considerations, think environmental or social, in tandem with their core investment underwriting, not as a separate add-on later, his origins outside of the world of wealth and how that affects his investment outlook, what impact intentionality means, the misconception that impact investing means below market returns, hashtag not true, Yeah, what a theory of change is all about, the biggest gaps in impact investment fund managers across various asset classes, advice he would give his younger self, his love and practice of stoicism, tools he uses to speed up his typing. Yes, you productivity lovers will appreciate his recommendation. Uh, Recommended books and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy it. And please give Nick and Caprock a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Nick Flores, Managing Director at Caprock and member of our Mastermind Program in Entrepreneurs for Impact. Welcome to the podcast, man. It's a privilege and an honor. Excited to uh, chat with you. Here, here. Finally press and record after many good conversations. So I just want to kind of admit to thousands of people right now that you are the source of the book, The Daily Stoic, which you passed along my way after I think our first conversation where you're like, I know exactly the book that you would like. And I thought to myself, that really happens. But I got the book, had never heard of it. I'd heard of Ryan Holiday before. And, uh, you know, I consume it maybe not every morning, but most mornings. And as I've told you before, we also gave it to our 17-year-old son who, that was a bit of an experiment, but he's, he's taken the bait. He reads it almost every day, and he, now he kind of admonishes other family members <laughs> when they're not behaving in a very <laughs> in a very stoic way, which is which is hilarious. 
And it's a book which I've given out to uh, lots of other members of our climate mastermind through our retreats. So anyway, boom, shake the room. You're the source. Thanks for that. You're welcome. I, I felt like I know like you, and I'm sure we'll talk about this. I listen to all sorts of podcasts. And one of the philosophies that so many folks seem to go back to is stoicism. I am not a philosophy major. I don't think I could have ever made it through a philosophy course in college. But for whatever reason, as I think I shared with you, this book makes that philosophy a little bit more digestible. And there's so many nuggets of wisdom. And, you know, every now and then you'll get a bad day or a dud. But, man, I've been through it now several times over the years, and I try to help my kids with it as well. And I just feel like there's so many useful like I said, tidbits of information and philosophy and perspective. Well, I like that you said that you're not a philosopher or wouldn't have made it through a course because sometimes whenever I say, oh, there's this great book on Stoic philosophy, I can kind of see the eyes and it's like, oh, come on, that's kind of like, you know, flip your nose in the air, like, you know, hoity-toity. I was like, hold on, hold on. I don't know the first, okay. I don't know the second thing about philosophy, but this book is very practical and kind of bite-sized. If yeah. you will. All right. So advertisement for Ryan Holiday. Love him. Now, now complete. All right. So another thing we talked about earlier was, was this statement, right? That in your words, I don't come from the world or I guess the world of wealth, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but I'll say, look, that's, that's where you work, right? Right. Um, so let, let's connect those dots. Maybe describe what you do at Caprock. And then connect it back to that statement. Is that cool? Absolutely. So what I do at Caprock is advise families and a small number of foundations and help them to invest in a manner that is consistent with their objectives. Most families and foundations, all of the families and foundations who come our way anyway, have hired us because we have a finance first focus. What that means is we invest across every asset class and have, I think, a unique ability to help clients align their wealth with their values, whatever those values may be. So I advise one family foundation that has asked us to invest 100% of their corpus to help combat climate change. I also work with a family who is very faith-driven and is hoping to support low-income populations, ideally in emerging markets, through the provision of water, financial inclusion, and a number of other services, housing, that sort of thing. The important thing about CapRock is that we have always believed that allocating capital with impact intentionality, as we would call it, need not necessarily entail a financial return sacrifice. One can certainly accept concessionary returns or do so philanthropically, but our belief has always been that as long as we are rigorous in our diligence, that we integrate impact analyses into our analytical processes, and that we follow up and ensure that managers are adhering to whatever their stated impact goals were from the time when we initially allocated capital, that if you do those three things, you can invest for impact, you can do it well, you can help clients align their portfolios with their values, and most importantly, that you can drive market rate returns in whatever the asset class may be. Now, the way that ties in to me and sort of my background is because I almost did financial advisory work right out of business school. So way back in 2005, 2006, 
I spent a summer at a very large bank that most people would recognize the name of. And it just, something was missing. It just didn't feel right. You know, the, the refrain when I went back to business school was I spent a summer in between first and second year. The refrain and joke kind of was, well, you don't want to make rich people richer. And while one could argue I'm, I'm doing that now, I feel like I'm helping people, sounds so hokey, but helping people make the world a better place in whatever manner they think that can be achieved. Now, there's necessarily some self-selection that goes into that process, right? Like some folks, I think, have hired Caprock and or myself personally because I share their worldview. I believe that people ought to have access to affordable housing. And so I think there's necessarily some alignment that I share with most, if not all of the clients that I'm fortunate to advise. But the reason I do this work is because of that impact component. That was missing years ago when I spent a summer on Wall Street and it was ultimately what compelled me to pursue this profession. And when I say I don't come from the world of wealth, it's because I've been on stage several times where critics or cynics you know, may look at me like I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. And quite to the contrary, my mother had me out of wedlock at the age of 20. I'm an only child. I was raised in affordable housing. I've written about this, been quite public about it in the past. And the reason I don't mind wearing my heart on my sleeve and being upfront about that is because it informs how I help clients allocate capital. It means I am necessarily going to look at any asset manager who comes our way with a, a bit of skepticism. If they're claiming impact intentionality in support for low-income populations, I'm going to want to know that they're not being extractive. I'm going to want to know that they actually care about the communities they claim to serve because they come from those communities. So kind of a long-winded answer to a pretty simple question, but hopefully better informs your listeners about who I am as a person. Oh, it's all my fault. I asked you two hard questions in one question. It was like a golden rule to not do in podcasting, but I knew, I knew you could handle it, Nick. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Um, all right. So you, you mentioned impact intentionality a couple of times. D- define that a little more. Well, it means a lot in this growing impact investment industry. So I'll back up a second and just say that the definition, at least to us, of an impact investment is any allocation of capital that has not only a financial return expectation, but also has with it the intention to create quantifiable social and or environmental benefits. So the intentionality is the critical piece for us. In other words, if a manager comes to us and says, hey, I've invested in all of these low-income housing properties and assets over the last decade, I'm now an impact manager. (laughs) Well, were you trying to create social benefits? And if so, how? In other words, we want to know if the manager, as part of their investment strategy and thesis, holds at the core support for some population, geographic area, or on the climate side, are they trying to decarbonize a particular asset or reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Just because it happens, and it's sort of coincidental, or I should say incidental, it doesn't mean to us that you're an impact investor. We want to make sure that anyone to whom we're allocating capital has, again, intends to create these benefits. And then we go one step farther, this is probably getting a little bit into the weeds, but we go one step farther and then require via a sign, a SOT, what's known as a side letter, 
managers to commit to reporting on whatever that stated in impact intention may be. Um, so we require them to commit to reporting to us on no less than an annual basis, some form of impact metric. In other words, how are we going to know that you're fulfilling the intention that you came to us with and that I, in turn, then told our clients you know, that you were going to do? Okay. Let's go a little higher level for a second. I think I probably should ask more of a business model question so that listeners know what I know. So, so Caprock, you're, you're a multifamily office asset manager. You're not managing like tens of thousands. It's a touch more than that. Ha ha ha. Um, t- tell us about, give us a kind of the Caprock summary, the, the, the kind of your asset center management. And I, I think that, that, that helps listeners understand, like, you know, it's, it's probably easier to find impact investments at a small scale, but at a larger scale, maybe it's harder. And you, you use the word managers just now. And I think in your definition of CapRock, just to kind of explain what a manager means in that context. Sure. So if you go to caprock.com, uh, and there's a reason why I say this, you'll see that we now advise a little over $8 billion in assets, and that's spread across 266 clients. So quick math, you can hopefully get a sense for the size of balance sheet with which we're typically working. Many of, if not all of the clients that we advise tend to want and need diversification across every asset class. And in order to do that, we're going to need to allocate capital to what are known as asset managers. Caprock itself is not an asset manager insofar as we do not create products to generate revenue for Caprock. We have what's known as an open architecture platform. What that means is we go out and find the best asset managers. Think of them as deployers of capital in in whatever the asset class may be. So if it's public equities, fixed income, stocks or bonds, real assets, venture capital, private equity. So those are the folks who are managing the capital. Some folks almost pejoratively refer to us as uh, an allocator or a manager of managers. And, and the reason is because we're ultimately responsible for taking a client's balance sheet, having many conversations with them to figure out what they want to accomplish. And from there, building out a portfolio in such a way where we're solving for their liquidity needs, their cash flow objectives, their risk tolerance, and their return expectations building out a portfolio across those four things, if you will, and then going out and finding asset managers who can steward that capital in such a way and invest it in such a way that in totality, in in the aggregate across the portfolio, we're helping those clients achieve their objectives. The impact piece of that, it makes, one might argue, our job that much harder. Because if we have, say, a client who really only wants to support low-income populations, well, now we need to go out and figure out how we're going to do that in categories like venture capital, private equity. Real assets might arguably be easier because we have deployed a fair amount of capital in affordable housing, but in other asset classes, it might be harder. And that's kind of why I joke, you know, for pejoratively referred to as an allocator of capital. Well, there's a lot more that goes into constructing a portfolio, generally speaking, especially if it's across six asset classes. And especially, especially if you're then trying to help a client effectuate a theory of change or, again, further their mission. Did that answer your question? 
It does. Just just taking notes here. Maybe let's build off that last thing you just said, theory of change. I think everyone understands those words individually, but together they, they mean something different. Yeah. So a theory of change may be, so we work with a, a rather large family foundation in Colorado. Their theory of change is that one of the best means of economic development is support for low-income populations. Well, how? One way may be through financial inclusion, in other words, access to financial services. Another way may be education, and specifically early childhood education, which it just so happens is a woefully underfunded component of the education technology space but that has demonstrable results and ample empirical evidence to show that that is arguably one of the best areas in which education, technology, capital ought to be deployed. Um, and so for in service to this client, you know, we've gone out, oh, oh and by the way, um, that's their theory of change. And they want to sort of pursue that theory of change within the confines of the state of Colorado. That's, that's their focus geographically. That's about as niche as it gets, uh, I would say, certainly across Caprock, but maybe even within the capital markets. Uh, and I say that kind of jokingly. But the point here is we've been able to deliver on that client's expectations, partly because of our open architecture, partly because our freedom and flexibility to go out and find the best solutions where they are, not necessarily because we believe we're the purveyors or managers of how that capital ought to be invested. And because I think unlike some of maybe our bank and broker dealer competitors, we're able to go out and offer objective advice. So again, we try to strip from our service offering any conflicts of interest, which just means I'm not sitting here pitching product like I would have had I stayed at the bank, you know, where I worked 15, 16, 17 years ago. We can just go out and find, like I said, the best solutions wherever they may be in the marketplace. Got it. You've alluded to this a little bit, but at a high level, what is the process for picking an impact-focused but finance-first manager, asset manager? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, like, that's our entire business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On one hand, the first step in that is sourcing. How do we go out and find these managers? I will say the good news is because we've deployed more impact capital than most, certainly within the private markets. And across not only more asset managers, but even then across strategies. So I think by last count, we had allocated to over 50 and close to 60 different impact managers. And then within that, sometimes we've invested with a manager multiple times. So we've allocated, you know, more than 100 funds. The good news is that with that activity comes a reputation for, to be really crass, writing checks. Right, like we're active and have deployed a fair amount of client capital. And I think not only do clients recognize that, prospective clients recognize that, but so too do asset managers. They pay attention. But you know, I think the, the point of your question is, well, what does the diligence process look like? I don't know if I have time to go through it in great detail or in length. I don't know if people would even be interested, but the point here is that it's quite rigorous. Mm. You know, we're not just looking at track record. We're looking, again, at that sort of investment strategy in the underlying impact thesis. In other words, how does the success of your strategy beget more environmental and or social benefits? And how does that flywheel effect really start to take shape in the companies or assets that you're that you're looking for? You know, there are a whole we have a dedicated investment committee and I'm not a part of that 
but a multi-person investment committee on which all of our founders sit. And the good news, having deployed as much capital as we have, is I think we have very specific areas and theses that we're constantly updating and trying to pursue in service to our client objectives. But you know, the, the impact piece is, I just want to be clear, fully integrated throughout. So in other words, we don't have two separate due diligence processes, one for traditional, i.e. non-impact funds, and then one for impact funds. Everything is evaluated holistically by the same investment committee. And what I've heard, some competitors are a little bit different, but we believe that's the best, if not only way, that one can go out and find impact opportunities that are every bit competitive with their traditional counterparts. Of the, I think, six asset classes that you just mentioned, where is it hardest to find asset managers that get impact along with finance first? I'm going to go with a a surprising answer here and say cash. Just surprising. It's It's the most overlooked asset class. But oddly enough, we have had a growing number of institutional clients who are coming to us and saying, look, we have all this cash sitting on our balance sheet. We want you to play almost a treasurer type role and protect it, but we'd like to know that it's doing something for the community if it's just going to sit there. In other words, Schwab and Fidelity and those custodians are fine, but if we can get this cash into local credit unions, community development financial institutions, or CDFIs, mm-hmm. um, you know, min- minority depository institutions. Believe it or not, there are all sorts of small banks and financial institutions out there that will be more than happy to take your cash. You know, by the way, still enjoy up to $250,000 of federal insurance. And where this became, where folks became acutely aware of this need was during COVID because these CDFIs and other local banks were really active and constantly putting cash and capital to work in their surrounding, oftentimes underserved or overlooked communities. So while most people would probably say, you know, real assets or private equity or venture capital, I think now we see plenty of asset managers. Five years ago, at nine years ago, when I joined CapRock, holy cow, it was so hard to go out and find managers that could further some of our clients' objectives. And again, not sacrifice financial returns. Now there's no shortage of managers in really any of those asset classes, even private credit. There's plenty of opportunities out there. And, and everybody, every, I was going to say everybody knows, but maybe not. You know, Stocks and bonds are pretty easy to values align. Nowadays, we kind of consider it table stakes. And so that leaves cash. And it's, it's, it's hard to find someone who can, say, deposit $20 million with minimal risk and do so in a values line manner. But thankfully, there are some increasing options. Well, and you, you mentioned stocks, so public equities. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention our mutual friend and company, Jay, Jay Lippman and Ethic and the work they're doing to help wealth managers put, I think, a two or three billion billion bucks towards you know, values aligned public equities investments. Yeah, they, they do a phenomenal job. Can I say that? Uh, <laughs> that is not a solicitation to invest with Ethic, but uh, we, we're so appreciative of the work that they do because not only can they help a client align with pinpoint precision, a an indexed, passively managed public equity portfolio, align those securities with the client or foundation's values, um, but they can 
go one step further and sort of provide a really concrete estimate of what the tracking error may be. So in other words, what the variance might be associated with the application of all of these different screens. Some of our clients, you know, are comfortable with a bit of variance, knowing that they don't have, say, for example, guns in their portfolio or fossil fuels. Mm. Other more institutional clients want to know, okay, we're going to hug that benchmark pretty closely. Um, and I just think Gothic does a great job uh, of meeting both clients where they are, both types of clients where they are. Mm. Okay. Backing up one comment, you, you set me up because you said something like, you know, five years ago, harder to find asset managers across all these asset classes, now lots of them. Yep. But there's also this phenomenon, which is, you know, first-time fund managers mm-hmm. and being finance first, but clearly you, you care about impact. How do you balance that, right? The funds didn't exist. Now they exist, but they don't have a three-year or, or you know, a fund one, fund two proof that the funds worked out. Right. So... There's a couple of different perspectives on that question. The first is nine nine years ago, 10 years ago, before I joined Caprock, we didn't really have a choice (laughs) but to get comfortable quickly in some cases with first-time funds and first-time fund managers. When I say quickly, I don't mean that we would somehow truncate our diligence process, but if a client came to us and said, hey, we want to allocate more capital in pursuit of land conservation, let's just say. You know, now we need to go out and find, uh, find okay, well, what TMOs, uh, Timberland Investment Management Organizations, or what Timberland funds or land conservation funds are out there? Well, back then, there were very, very few. I can tell you or name them if you're interested. But the point is, if a family came to us and said, this is what we want to accomplish from an investment and impact investment perspective, There were times when we just needed to go out and find it. And there were even times when we had to work with asset managers who we knew to help them then structure a fund to, again, further some of those client objectives. I would say one thing that has become much more obvious in the last four or five years is how track records and the bias against first-time funds um, oftentimes disproportionately and negatively affects people of color um, because oftentimes they don't have the, the sorts of networks on which many firms like Caprock tend to rely. And so I think we have done our best to not become overly reliant upon track record. It's certainly important. We're no different than any other multifamily office or investor in that way. Um, but in the absence of that, what, you know, we'll look at how the manager is affected by the issue that they may, he or she may be trying to change. We'll want to look at the team. How long, this gets back a little bit to your question on diligence. How long have they worked together? How well do they work together? How have they worked with other people? How have they supported other portfolio companies? Even though there are plenty of first-time funds, you know, which rare, never say never, but I don't know of any time that we've invested in someone who doesn't have some investment track record, right? Like either as individuals. And so this whole notion of first-time funds, I think as we've grown and scaled, we have had to rely on first-time funds a little bit less, but that doesn't mean we avoid them. And in fact, again, we've had to invest in a couple of first-time funds even in the last year or two. 
because we were we have an increasing number of clients who are asking for certain things that just are out there in the marketplace right now. Yeah, and I think sometimes the research actually shows that first-time fund managers can outperform, right? Yeah, uh, much, bigger, much bigger funds, yeah. Uh, a colleague of mine introduced this term to me. I want to double-click on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. hip, yeah. yeah. No, I'm far from... Uh, so yeah, not only does the data prove that, but it's it's consistent with the thesis that we've had for quite some time, which is first-time funds might be a little too small, but you know we've definitely allocated to funds as low as thirty million, I want to say, in our past. Um, the number's gone up as our the scale of our operations have grown, but we're always trying to find managers who are disciplined and have a cogent, coherent thesis but that are also a little bit nimble, right? Like, and you've certainly seen it, I'm sure, in the climate space. And all of a sudden you have the TPGs and KKRs and all these like multi, multi-billion dollar funds. And that's great. I think our industry will need it, but we're almost going to have a bias more towards smaller funds that can take board seats that may have a small, you know, a $250 million pool of capital. And while that sounds like a lot of money, you know, we believe that some of those managers who can scratch an itch or sort of go into pockets or corners of the capital markets that are a little bit more niche. And again, as long as it's furthering client objective and it passes all of our due diligence screens and rigor, I think we can get comfortable quite quickly with some of those smaller funds because they're just a little bit more targeted and flexible. Hey, it's Chris. Just a brief message from our sponsors, and we'll get back to the show. (laughs) Just kidding. We don't take sponsors. On the other hand, I do have the privilege of leading the only executive peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors fighting climate change. With monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. Today's 30-plus members represent over $8 billion in market cap or assets under management for climate solutions. If you're interested, go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. All right, back to the show. Okay, we're going to switch now, as listeners know, from the business to the person. Yeah. So Nick, if you could give your younger self advice on how to be faster, more effective, happier, pick your pick your wonderful adjective, what are a couple of nuggets you pass on? Well, I certainly wish I would have found stoicism earlier. Uh, <laughs> I also wish I would have been more diligent in my meditation practice. Uh, I had some heart issues. What would that have been? 12 years ago in 2011. So I was kind of lost and I was a rather intense type A type person. And I thought, well, I've heard a lot about this transcendental meditation. Maybe that'll help. Uh, So I paid the money, took the course, did all the work. And then I I didn't do the work. I I didn't do it as rigorously as I do now. And I think for someone who's dealt with anxiety since it feels like birth, just slowing down, taking breaths, meditating, maybe exercising a little bit more embodying some of the philosophies of stoicism. I think those things would have made life a far, far much more easier for me in my younger days. Hmm. I hear that. 
How about a similar, similar theme? Tell us about some habits or routines that keep you healthy, sane, and focused in the work you do. I mean, I go back to meditation, exercise. I mean, all the things, especially this time of year, right? Like everybody's supposedly doing because that's what their resolutions were. Yeah, and I think one of the things, so I, prior to Caprock, I had a job that allowed me to work from home. And I remember thinking it was an absolute disaster. Uh, COVID kind of forced me to do it again. And I think, you know, one of the best habits that I have is I try to have boundaries. So generally speaking, especially now, I try not to work between the hours of six and eight. Anybody who's listening to this, who's emailed with me is going to be like, he's definitely emailed me at 730. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't always live up to that, but I just feel like the more I can respect those boundaries, the more appreciative I'll be of not only the time that I have with my family, but then the time that I need to work, right? Well, I, I think one tool that it took me a long time to discover in order to respect boundaries of time is uh, is to schedule, schedule emails, schedule Slack posts, so that even if, you're, if, if you happen, if I happen to be working at odd hours, which is not often, that I can schedule it to show up, not when I'm doing the work, and then it, it kind of clogs someone else's downtime, but it shows up, whatever, nine o'clock the next morning. Yeah. On that note, I don't know what you would call it. I think of an app um, called Boomerang, which enables you to send an email later is what I use in that way. Um, I also use this other thing. Um, I was first introduced to sort of keyboard shortcuts. Um, I forget what, that's not what they're called on an iPhone, but you know, how you can write like T-T-Y-L, right? And Apple will automatically elongate that to talk to you later, you know, see those sorts of things. So I found an app called Phrase Express, which enables you to do that for, I mean, full on paragraphs if you wanted to. So, you know, I don't know that that keeps me sane to to the spirit of the question, but those little things, like those little tools, I feel like, I guess you could call them hacks. I love them because I do feel like most people have canned responses and these little things like Phrase Express uh, or even on the iPhone, the the keyboard shortcuts, I save a fair amount of time. I, I wanted to at least make sure I mentioned them. Phrase Express, for first time appearing on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a total type A, nerdy, hyper-efficient thing that I, that I would love. Yes. Good, good recommendation. How about uh, uh, books, podcasts, quotes, et cetera, that you think the listeners may enjoy, Nick? We already talked about one book, which uh, I have gifted a fair amount. Another one... Uh, that I've gifted a few times is Essentialism by Greg McKeon. Mm, uh, great one. Kind of the art of, yeah, he sounds like, you know, and I'm guessing a lot of your listeners do too. One I read way back in business school that I, I am constantly surprised at how often it comes up is Cialdini. Robert Cialdini, it's a book called Influence. When folks read it, they're going to be like, well, yeah, of course. Things like social proof, urgency, all the things, that, the really simple tools that marketers use but you'd be surprised how prevalent they are in just your day-to-day life. So those are three books. And I'm not going to, again, surprise anybody with some of the podcasts I listen to, Andrew Uberman, Tim Ferriss. I have tried to listen to a few more podcasts, but like Tom Segura and Dak Shepard, just to not be so intense and such a nerd and always trying to self-improve, like actually be entertained. <laughs> time wait, wait, what? I don't, because I don't, I don't understand what you just said. Um, <laughs> what, what, what are those last two podcasts about? 
Oh, Tom Segura is a stand-up comic. Might be a little too raunchy for some, but my wife and I love stand-up. Yeah. And then Dax Shepard is, he is an actor technically, but he has a pretty good podcast. I mean, he's had like Obama, Hillary Clinton, and he gets some big name guests. Those are fun too. Okay. Okay. So back on the book Influence. Yeah. So I bought the whatever expanded 10 year anniversary. Who knows what it is? I bought the big old, the big old book. I mistakenly took it on one of my three day solo retreats in the mountains. Wrong book for a mountain retreat. But, you know, it's been a little overwhelming. And this is a good reminder to either to read it or to get the audio and take notes while I read it. Yeah. And I would say, from what I read, the, 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 the words are obvious, social proof, urgency, but the science behind it, right, is shocking, right? We are, we are a crazy species. So yeah, strong, strong plus one on that one. Okay, so Nick, getting to the end here, what's a, I don't know, a final call to action, a message that you want to leave a large room full of climate innovators, entrepreneurs, investors with? So two things. One, anybody who is committed their career to this industry, whether that be climate technology, impact investing, just trying to make the world a more hospitable, habitable, inhabitable place, keep it up. I feel like as someone who, when I switched careers, I was motivated highly by idealism and constantly frustrated by how infrequently people walked their talk. I am emboldened today by the momentum that this industry, I mean, I'm referring to it very broadly, that the momentum that this industry continues to enjoy. I mean, anybody who reads your newsletters and can see just the amount of dollars going toward climate technology just continues to skyrocket. The same is true of impact investing. And so I think there's going to be no shortage of capital available to those who can prove that they have a better mousetrap, um, whatever that may be, obviously speaking figuratively. <laughs> the second thing I would say, though, um, is a little bit more parochial, and, and, but it's a message that we have been delivering since I joined Caprock and even before that. And I'm pleased that I think it's finally resonating amongst a lot of investors, but it's simple. It, it's what I said earlier, which is impact investing need not entail a financial return sacrifice. I've, it's never ceased to amaze me how often folks' knee-jerk reaction to that statement is, well, it's just, it's just skepticism, right? And I would hope that people would want to believe that I'm speaking the truth. The good news is we at Caprock now have the empirical data to prove it, but for so long, it was stigmatizing. And especially in a place like Silicon Valley. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I left is because it, it just so frequently was characterized as less than. Now, uh, now we have this other boogeyman to worry about. It's the ESG demon. And <laughs> it's sadly become politicized. I think we're able to kind of stay above that fray because I don't think anybody would ever, if they looked at some of our impact investments, they would never doubt that we're actually generating tangible social and environmental benefits. But there's, there's no question, there's still a lot of people out there who skeptically believe that impact investing is somehow less than, and I w- would love to change their mind, if possible. That's a great, a great spot to end, uh, Nick. It's awesome that there are so many families with the kind of resources that they have that also agree with you. 
and are putting their money to work where their where their values are. It, it does help, Chris, when there's people like you out there. We're not only teaching that next generation, if I can give you a little bit of a plug, teaching that next generation, but also just continuing to spread the gospel, so to speak, right? I can share information that, again, enables hopefully that next entrepreneur to know where they can go to find whether that be capital, whether that be human resources, whether that be a network like the mastermind group. There are resources out there. And, you know, 10 years ago, I don't know that it was anywhere near as easy, but I am, again, positive note on which to end. I am happy that the momentum continues to build. Well, I, I appreciate that. It is it is fun work to spend the next few decades on. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're here. All right, man, talk soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all y'all. Take care.